Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Starting around the time of World War I, six million African Americans moved from the South, searching for better economic opportunities. Coming up, we'll talk about the Great Migration and how it shaped communities in Connecticut in the 20th century. But first, do you know the story of William Grimes? The New Haven resident escaped slavery and went on to write the first slave narrative to be published in the U.S. His autobiography was republished in 2008, thanks in part to his great-great-great-granddaughter, Regina Mason. How she discovered his story is told in the documentary film, Gina's Journey, The Search for William Grimes. Regina joined me in studio before the film screened at New Haven Museum Monday evening. Regina Mason, welcome to where we live. Thank you. So happy to be here. I understand that your interest in genealogy goes way back to an assignment that you received in the fifth grade. In the fifth grade in the spring of 1971. I'll never forget it. Um, I was prompted to ask my mother where we came from. And when she gave me my history, there were some things that stuck out. And one was that her grandfather uh, was a former slave. And that shocked me because I expected slavery to be hundreds of years ago, not a few generations away from me. And so I asked about his life, and it certainly wasn't a happy life. He was a mulatto slave, the product of a taboo interracial union. And the dynamics of that struck me, because this is the first time I'm learning about American slavery. I'm learning about the Underground Railroad and, and all of that. But to have that in my presented to me uh, was really got me thinking about this whole issue of slavery and how it impacted the family and so forth. So I didn't come away feeling good about my family history at all. Uh, my mother sort of sensed this, so she took me to see my Aunt Catherine, the family historian. And then Catherine gave me a story that I just felt so proud about. And what it essentially amounted to were three little clues. She told me that someone by the name of Grimes was associated with the Underground Railroad and that he was from New Haven, Connecticut. That was all I had. And you're a little girl in California hearing this. I'm a little girl in California, but I knew that that represented a resistant story. And that's what I wanted to hear, someone who defied the system. So I begged her for more information, but she had given me all she knew, and that little thread of a story stayed with me for over 20 years. And I decided that I wanted to see if I, if there was any measure of truth in the story that she gave me. And by this time, I'm a young wife and mother of two little babies, and I wanted them to know their history. So I picked up genealogy, and after a measure of success with records like census returns and and vital statistics, I realized, well, you know, the records, the documents are out there. Let me see if this Grimes person 
is out there. So I began pairing the process of genealogy with an enormous appetite on books on the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist movement. I didn't know what capacity this person was associated with the Underground Railroad. So I was thinking that, you know, maybe something was written about this person, you know. Your journey took you to libraries? Took me to archives, libraries, everywhere. And then one day I had this, um, all these library books that were due, and I came across a title that I had not even looked at, and it was Charles Bloxon's book, The Underground Railroad. So I picked it up, and I started thumbing through it, and I, I turned specifically to the Free New England section of the book. And within the first two pages, Bloxon wrote about a man named William Grimes, who stowed away on a vessel that took him from Savannah, Georgia, to New York City. Okay, and then I read further down, then it said, and he was directed on foot by underground railroad workers to New Haven, Connecticut. And I thought, wow. And Catherine said, the Grimes surname, the Underground Railroad, New Haven, Connecticut. So there were those three clues and I said, wow, I've got to follow this. And it turns out that Bloxon's bibliography revealed that this William Grimes character had written his life story. So I had to do some investigative work. I needed to know and find this narrative. I wanted to know if this person belonged to me. So I found a publication at the Oakland Public Library called Five Black Lives. And then I learned that the book was still in print and was sold at a neighboring bookstore. So I went into this bookstore. They had three copies on their shelf, and I bought all three, not knowing if this man even belonged to me. And it took me years to piece together the story, and I would eventually find that, indeed, he was my ancestor. And I, it just floored me. I had to know about this unusual genre of literature, which was the slave narrative, because it read nothing like an autobiography that I was familiar with. So I um, actually partnered with uh, Bill Andrews, who's a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I contacted him because he wrote a book called To Tell a Free Story about early African-American autobiography. And in that massive book was reference to William Grimes. And at the time, and I'm doing this in the, in the 90s, before the Internet, mm-hmm. and I contacted Bill because he was the only person that I found that had written about William Grimes. So we developed this sort of relationship and... Uh, he, over the years, told me, he goes, you know, you are really acquiring lo- uh, quite a bit of information on this William Grimes character. And I started doing this, gathering all this data on him and researching his narrative, not even knowing that he belonged to me. But in the end, uh, my Aunt Catherine came home with Bible pages that were in the family for generations that no one knew about. She had to go to Portland, Oregon to find 
this document that eventually contained William Grimes's name, and I was able to piece it together that way. And a copy of his obituary? A copy of his obituary I did find, and with other family members' names that would help me to take the um, his story to corroborate some of the information in his uh, narrative. So, yes, it, it was a daunting task, took years. Um, and then I had cabinets of information and uh, on this guy, William Grimes, and I kept sharing the information with Bill Andrews. And he said, you know, we, we should team up and we should republish his narrative with full annotations and and you can tell your story in there as well. And that autobiography was republished in, in 2008. 2008. What was the name of your great-great-great-grandfather's, his narrative? What did he title it? The original title is William Grimes, The Runaway Slave, and that was written in 1825. And a, an original copy is housed at the Beinecke Library at Yale. William Grimes publishes twice in his life, in 1855 when he's an old man. It's the same narrative. He just adds an added chapter that talks about his life in old age. But the beauty of that one is that there's an image of himself on the cover. And it just so happened that I found it at the New Haven Museum. Uh, curator Jim Campbell at the Whitney Library uh, I just happened to call him one day to see whether or not they had the publication. And lo and behold, they did. And he said, and there's a striking image of him on the cover. And it just blew me away because I never thought I'd know what this man looked like. What did he look like? <sighs> very distinguished. He had this stovepipe hat on very much in the era of Abraham Lincoln. And he had... He was dressed very well, and but he was carrying this basket with, I couldn't tell what was in it, but I could also see on his face that he had aged incredibly. He looked as though he had a hard life, but I understand the era that he lived was very d difficult, and, and of course, it all reflected on his face. But there was a sense of pride and dignity about him as well. What did you learn about him specifically? How did he escape? He stowed away on a vessel from Savannah, Georgia, that delivered him to uh, New York City. And from there, he, was, he made his way to New Haven, Connecticut. But his master was in Bermuda at the time. And William Grimes is an urban slave in Savannah, which meant he had mobility. And his master left him to work for his time, which meant that uh, he would be hired out. He'd have to find his own employment, but he'd have to pay his master while, he was, while they were gone in um, Bermuda. And so the opportunity presented himself, and he stole away. 
This is where we live. I'm speaking with Regina Mason. She's a, a speaker, an author, playwright, and film producer. Also the great, great, great granddaughter of William Grimes. He wrote the first fugitive slave narrative published in the U.S. Uh, Regina was in town earlier this week for a screening of the documentary Gina's Journey, the Search for William Grimes at the New Haven Museum. You mentioned that uh, William Grimes's father was a slave owner. What about his mother? What did you find out? His mother, oh, she remains pretty much anonymous, um, as most slave women are. He doesn't name her in his uh, book, but he writes about her briefly. He, he talks about the moment that he was sold from away from her and how heartbreaking it was. Um, and he did, doesn't see her for another 20 years when he passes through the old plantation again. And, but that's the extent of it. I think I know who she is, but I haven't found the solidifying documentation to that emphatically says this is William's mother. So her voice, her life really are anonymous. Mm -hmm. When you were able to read uh, his uh, autobiography, what struck you about him? Well, first of all, it was very hard to get through his book. It read so brutal. The whole slave system was more than um, what I imagined it to be. So to hear or read his words... I had to put the book down a few times because it was a world that I could hardly comprehend. It was just an unfathomable world. So once I got beyond the brutality and the horrible um, slave system, I was able to piece together his humanity and see who he was, a man that was very sure about himself, a man that knew his name, a man that knew how to read and to write. How he somehow picked up the bare bones of reading and writing. And he said in his narrative, he said, if I had been given the chance, I would have done so much more with my life because I was a fast learner. But remarkably, in his time, he did something that was so amazing by simply telling his story in his own words. He boldly inserted himself into American history. So he definitely defied the status quo of the times. And on his book, he says, written by himself. And that was very radical and revolutionary in 1825 at a time when reading and writing were relegated to white people. But he had the nerve to say, I wrote this myself. And his uh, slave narrative, very different from when uh, slave fugitive slave narratives became a tool for the abolitionist Absolutely. movement. Absolutely. Because it, was, it described in detail what happened to him. Well, here's the thing. William Grimes' narrative predates the um, abolitionist movement. So he's sort of pioneering. And he had no white sponsorship or involvement. So he tells, and Bill Andrews likes to, to or says this all the time, it's an unedited 
book of literary independence. So he was not writing for a white audience. He was telling it like it was. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Regina Mason, the great, great, great granddaughter of William Grimes, a man who escaped slavery in 1814 and went on to live in New Haven, Connecticut. In 1825, Grimes wrote the first slave narrative published in the U.S. titled William Grimes, the Runaway Slave. Coming up, we hear more from Mason about Grimes' life in the free North. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A fifth-grade assignment sparked Regina Mason's interest in her family's slave roots. As an adult, Mason began a search for her great-great-great-grandfather, William Grimes. He escaped slavery in 1814 and began a life in New Haven, Connecticut. Later, he would write his autobiography. It was the first slave narrative published in the U.S. in 1825. Mason worked with UNC professor Bill Andrews to republish the slave narrative in 2008. Her story to learn about her relative is told in the documentary, Gina's Journey, The Search for William Grimes. Uh, So you worked with Mr. Andrews to uh, republish uh, uh, your great-great-great-grandfather's autobiography, and then you went on to work on this film. Tell us about that process. It was incredible. First of all, It was a feat to get the edition published. And while that book was circulating, a filmmaker by the name of Sean Durant from the Oakland Bay Area was at one of my book signings. And he said, you know, you tell an incredible story. You really need to have visuals with it. And I thought, well, yes, this would be great. But how do I go about doing this? And he said, look, I will help you. So he he had a bigger dream than what I had. We didn't have a big budget for this film. Uh, We did crowdfunding. We had uh, people that thought this, you know, this is an amazing story. We need it out there. So they gave of their time. They donated their skill sets. And bit by bit, step by step, we put this film together. It took seven years. But in the end, we feel we have a beautiful product, and uh, we we followed William Grimes' example. We gave ourselves permission. William Grimes didn't know how he was going to write his narrative. He didn't know how it was going to get published, but he knew by hook or crook it was going to get done, and that was the same inspiration we used to make this film. Uh, When he came to Connecticut, did it mean that he had an easy life? How did he describe living in the North? And how does that um, clash with uh, the perception that once a slave traveled on the Underground Railroad, they had freedom? Freedom. (laughs) And freedom meant the land of milk and honey, right? Well, it was not like that. And he's the first narrator or author of uh, a narrative to explain how difficult it was to carve out a life in the so-called free North. He talked about, first of all, constantly looking over his shoulder, fearful that he was going to be spotted by some of his masters, and he was uh, a few times, so he would just pick up altogether and flee to where he thought it was safe to be. But he was constantly cheated out of business. He was on the perpetual treadmill of poverty, as Bill likes to say, um, trying to carve out a life for himself and his family. 
and he wanted desperately to have a profession. And so he knew the barbering trade, and that was exclusive to African Americans. So he he did find su- success in that arena, but he was constantly pitted against uh, poor whites who felt more entitled to the land of opportunity. So he would be warned out of town on false accusations and false charges and so forth. So the North, he did not advise any slave to run to because he said, you're sure to be caught and you will have to work extremely hard. Nine years after his escape, his master found him. What happened? Ah, By this time, William Grimes is a homeowner. He's a husband. He has young children, and he's confronted with a dilemma. Either he be sent down to down the river in chains, or he purchase his freedom. So he ended up having to give up the deed to his home for so-called freedom. That was very bitter, sweet, um, because it was a false freedom. But yet he didn't. He no longer had to look over his shoulder. But he was never able to recover the same financial means that he had acquired before his master found him. So the the family became penniless, and they didn't have a roof over their heads. But they did manage to survive. We mentioned your documentary film, Gina's Journey, The Search for William Grimes. What has been the response to the way that you've told this story, not just his story, but your journey? It has been beautiful and uplifting, a little bit different from the the uh, slave stories that are out there because sometimes I would get responses like, oh, no, not another slave story. I don't want to hear that. But it's really not about slavery. I mean, that just happened to be... Uh, my family history. So it's the story that I tell, but it transforms that. It's the will of the human spirit. It is the virtues and gifts that William Grimes have passed along to me that is monumental, that uh, is what should resonate. And I hope it does. And the fact that you were able uh, to find his story very rare, considering that there are many African-Americans who wanted to trace their roots, and there may be a dead end, but it was that key to the family Bible with the, many other steps along the way? The, the key was the oral history that's passed down, and that is typical in an African-American family. You have that oral history, and there's nuggets of truth in what the uh, elders are saying, and you have to follow those nuggets. I mean, I did find a lot of distorted history as well, stories that were not factual, but there was always a thread of truth and evidence in the stories that were passed down. And I think that that is uh, the message to everyone. So where you think you don't have much of a family history, the, the, the truth of the matter is you really do. The information is out there. You may not have the same measure of success as someone over there or even my story, but I guarantee you will come away feeling empowered and uplifted.
You were persistent, uh, even visiting the plantation where uh, at one point uh, William Grimes lived and was born. What was the reception? What did you, re- what kind of, uh, <laughs> how did they receive you? Very interesting. Well, the property, Eagle's Nest, remained in the family for 300 years and was sold to outsiders in 1974, the year I began high school. So fast forward that to the year 2000, and I'm meeting with the owner of Eagle's Nest who had no relation or kinship to the Grimes family. And he was just so thrilled to know the the history. So he, he invited me to his home. And it at first, uh, he said, "You know, I really want you to. I want you to meet the board members of the historical society. They've got to know this story and so forth." But then I noticed that the conversation started to wane a little bit, but the invitation still stood. So I went to Eagle's Nest, and I just pointed to the, the owner. I said, "You know, in the beginning, there was so much." positive information and 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 um, you wanted me to reach out to the members of the historical society and now I'm getting they're so booked up for the year that maybe next year they'll be open to the story and then he said well I must tell you that you are awkwardly related to half of the board members and they were just not very happy about this story that floored me I'm thinking the year 2000, we've all changed our mindsets. We've gotten beyond this slavery issue, but obviously we know today we still have not. So that was the interesting story, backstory then. But now in 2018, I have the younger generation finding my book. I'm not searching for them, but they're searching for me, and they're telling me that we are probably related. And they're not, the awkward part is not in the equation any longer. So what is your your advice to our listeners who they want to find uh, their ancestors? Uh, they want to look into those uh, oral uh, stories that they heard from, from their relatives. The advice that I would give the listeners is to talk to your elders. Many of us have great-grandparents or grandparents that are oftentimes at social gatherings just sitting off to themselves, just watching and observing. That's the opportunity to go and spend with them and ask questions of their lives. And I think that that will start the conversation because my grandmother back in the 60s lived with us, but I was not equipped then to ask her the questions. Had I known then to ask those questions, she would have given me so much information. But oftentimes our elders do not even volunteer the information. So it's up to us, the younger generation, to go and ask the questions. And that's where you start by getting those oral stories. Regina Mason, again, the great-great-great-granddaughter of William Grimes. He wrote the first fugitive slave narrative published in the U.S. Uh, William Grimes uh, escaped uh, from the South, uh, lived in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, lived and died. Absolutely. He did. He died in 1865. He had to know freedom was in the air. I That had to be amazing for him. And he's buried in in the Grove Street Cemetery. And I would like to also add that if anyone would like to 
read his narrative, they can go to our website at www.ginasjourney.com. And they can also find out more information about the film as well. And the film is Gina's Journey, The Search for William Grimes. A pleasure to speak with you, Regina. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we talk about the Great Migration in the 20th century, when millions of African Americans moved from the South. How did that shape our Connecticut communities today? We'll find out after the break. First, do you appreciate conversations like this on Where We Live? Each week, we listen to your stories. We work to highlight our diverse communities. Please support the show and WNPR. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening to Where We Live's podcast on Connecticut Public Radio. And while I've got you, here's our promise. Great conversations and analysis are just part of what we do. WNPR covers the news that matters most with voices you can trust. But we need your support. Make your contribution at wmpr.org slash donate or 1-800-584-2788. Thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, the Connecticut Supreme Court has ruled that the way public schools are funded does not violate the state constitution. On the next Where We Live, what happens next? The court ruled it's the responsibility of the legislature, not the court, to ensure funding for schools is distributed fairly. Will lawmakers address this decades-long issue during the new legislative session? We'll find out, and you can join the conversation. That's Thursday. Now, the Great Migration transformed the Northeast and other U.S. regions in the 20th century as African Americans moved from the South to escape Jim Crow and to find jobs during the industrial boom, first after World War I and later with the start of World War II. How did this time in our nation's history shape communities here in Connecticut? Joining us now by phone is Dr. Stacy Close, professor of history and associate vice president for equity and diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University. Dr. Close, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's probably been a long time since uh, many of our listeners have learned about the great migration in school. Tell us about the factors that led so many African Americans to leave the South. Um, One of the factors, uh, as you mentioned, uh, was, of course, economics. Um, Economic opportunity opened as a result of World War I and opportunities uh, initially in Connecticut, tobacco fields, and then around the state in, in, in industries. And interestingly enough, uh, in terms of tobacco, uh, you found that tobacco uh, growers actually recruited the South uh, for workers uh, because we did have uh, members of the Tobacco Growers Association that had direct ties to the South. Uh, in order to be effective, though, they um, connected with the uh, National Urban League, and then the Urban League connected them with uh, college presidents like John Hope of Morehouse College, and then John Hope. Uh, in 1915 would uh, come to Connecticut and then sign up 15 of his Morehouse men to work tobacco. And then eventually behind them will come rank and file as well as other college students from other colleges throughout the South. You mentioned, uh, obviously, job opportunities. The hope for economic uh, uh, opportunity was one of the factors. Uh, But with Jim Crow, what was happening in the South? What made it dangerous for African Americans? This was, uh, some people would say, the the, the heyday of of lynching. Uh, You had incredible uh, amounts of violence in places like Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and other places. And these were um, uh, places which uh, people had known people who were uh, victims, and they themselves have been living under uh, terror. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they decided to uh, to make a move 
northward as a way to escape uh, the violence of the South. Uh, Now, I'm sorry. What were some of the traditional uh, routes, so to speak, that they took? We know uh, many uh, settled in the Midwest, in Chicago. Um, Others decided to come to Connecticut. The tobacco growers were um, looking for uh, people to work in the fields. But what were some other ways that got people here? Um, People uh, would. uh, You also had people who went uh, as far west as California. The family of Jackie Robinson left southwest Georgia and went as far as, as Pasadena. Uh, there were other families who uh, came from Virginia uh, by way of steamship up to Connecticut, and there were other people who uh, just simply uh, climbed into the back of a truck and then rode two or three days uh, to to get to Connecticut and to get to other places. Uh, we were talking about African Americans moving from the South during the Great Migration, but also Caribbeans uh, came uh, to this region. Uh, tell us about uh, was it the same job opportunities that led them here. Well, the, the, as far as the, the, the move from the Caribbean, um, it was, again, um, during the World War I period, and particularly during the World War II period, uh, it was a question of jobs. Um, now, um, some of the more famous individuals who do come uh, are, are people like Judge Constance Baker Motley of uh, New Haven. Um, but her family came from the Caribbean, uh, lived in New Haven, and eventually... She will, uh, through her, uh, her, her incredible knowledge, uh, skill, and eventually uh, legal skills, become a key cog uh, in the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in her work uh, with uh, Thurgood Marshall. We're hoping to talk about uh, Judge Motley uh, in a future show. Um, also, Martin Luther King Jr. spent some time here in Connecticut. Can you walk Absolutely. us through that? Um, King came in 1944 and, and 1946. Uh, he's a, uh, a young teenager uh, in 1944 and 1946, and uh, his wife, uh, Coretta Scott King, writes about uh, his time in Connecticut in her autobiography. And there are also wonderful letters that he writes back to his, um, his parents about his time at the uh, Coleman Brothers Farm in Simsbury. And it has a transformative impact on him uh, because he's able to... Um, uh, go to an integrated church. He sings in the choir in Simsbury. And he also, uh, when he gets a chance, he'll, uh, in 1946, there's a report that he actually, when he visited Hartford, one of the places he stopped in uh, was a little restaurant called the uh, the Cozy Spot that was on Windsor Street. And the, uh, the Windsor Street restaurant there uh, offered Southern cuisine because the owners were from Georgia, so you could get uh, your... Um, pork chop sandwiches for 43 cents. You could get a chicken dinner for 76 cents. And so it was a culture and a climate that was filled with Southerners. Mm-hmm. And he got to experience that. Plus, he um, also uh, got to know the, um, the membership at Shiloh Baptist Church. On the phone with me is Dr. Stacy Close, professor of history and associate vice president for equity and diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University. We're talking about the Great Migration when millions of African Americans moved from the South, uh, looking for uh, job opportunities uh, in the North and the Midwest, even over as far away as as California. What about the tensions, uh, Dr. Close? Uh, we know around the, the 1919, 1920s, uh, there were race riots in Chicago and Tulsa. Mm-hmm. But how were African Americans from the South embraced in this part of the country. Um, well, in, in terms of tensions, some of the tensions that do emerge, they emerge uh, as a result of racial issues. There were tensions about where African Americans could sit in theaters. 
uh, in Connecticut, and you still had to deal with postcards and artifacts that depicted African Americans in a very negative light that were quite popular in Connecticut. Uh, then you um, you also fact factor in that when the riots do occur in East St. Louis and Washington D.C. and Chicago, it has a huge impact on the uh, the black community. And one of the things that happens in Connecticut is that the ministers not only write about the violence, but they also criticize the, um, the, the marauders that are attacking black communities during, during this time period. Then there's the, the issue of transplanted churches and religion that emerges as well. Uh, you will have some tensions between um, blacks who were born in Connecticut versus those who are, mi- who are migrating from the South and bringing their religious traditions that are different from what you have here in Connecticut. Can you uh, talk about some of the, the broader tensions? So, uh, again, you had these uh, these new residents uh, from the South moving into Connecticut communities. We know about uh, housing uh, policies such as redlining uh, that kept uh, African-Americans in specific parts of the state. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. You find that um, many African-Americans will be confined to, to certain areas. Uh, certain areas that are extremely overcrowded. And one of, the, one of the things that consistently happens in Connecticut, particularly in African-American communities during this migration period, is that apartments that were once built for uh, four were sometimes divvied up and made for families of eight. And so that leads to further overcrowding, further overcrowding, further overcrowding. And it happens in almost every uh, urban area in Connecticut where you have this, blacks are basically confined to a certain area. And if they, even if they do have the money to buy housing, uh, they're often steered away from property by realtors, or if they get there, uh, people say the property is no longer available for sale. Dr. Close, uh, tell us about your family and, uh, in Connecticut. How long have, have, can you trace them back here? Uh, it's basically, um, I've been in Connecticut now for 24 years, so it's just basically just been me uh, in Connecticut. Now, um, we hear from some uh, African-American families who moved during the, the Great Migration mm-hmm. in the 20th century that uh, their, uh, their uh, adult children are now moving back south, and some have even used that term reverse migration. Uh, what are the trends there? You, 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 you've seen a trend of... Um, uh, outward migration from the north uh, that began uh, in, in the 80s um, as the uh, as jobs began to decline in the north and as, as jobs began to increase in the south, uh, people began that, that trek uh, back southward, leading to increased populations around Atlanta, parts of Charlotte. And for travelers who now go to the area around Atlanta, they are quite... Um, surprised to find a lot of people from New York, a lot of people from Connecticut, uh, in, now in Georgia, now in North Carolina, now in Virginia and other places. Uh, and it's, it's in part economics. Uh, it's in part people seeking a, a, a better way of life. And for other people, just simply wanting to um, go back home to where their, their roots began. We should mention that around uh, the early part of the Great Migration, uh, the NAACP uh, was was founded here in Connecticut. Who were the Who were the members? Um, many of um, of, of um, Connecticut's early NAACP members 
were uh, local folks who were concerned about uh, some of the, uh, the issues they saw on the horizon. Uh, I'll give you, for example, um, Mary Townsend Seymour uh, in, in Hartford. She was quite concerned about the possibility of segregating black children in the um, uh, Hartford schools. And concerned about that, she contacted the NAACP, and in 1917, W.E.B. Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson, and other leaders of the uh, national organization came to Hartford. Uh, they gave uh, lectures at Center Church, and they, they talked about those issues, and they clearly made a push uh, to um, argue that they, they were not going to permit segregation in, in, in Hartford schools. When you look back at that time in our history, uh, you've obviously done extensive research about the impact here in Connecticut. What is uh, the Great Migration's legacy to this state? Um, part of the Great Migration's legacy is uh, the establishment of um, um, large numbers of, of churches that gave a, a base and a, um, a place for people to um, um, worship openly but also a place for them to feel as if they, were, they had ownership in the community. You add into that, for the uh, tens of thousands who came, uh, their numbers actually changed the politics of, of, of Connecticut. Um, before the, the Great Migration, most, most blacks in Connecticut, of course, were directly tied to the Republican Party. And you, you would begin to see a shift uh, to the Democratic Party. And a part of that shift um, in the 1930s was a move over to uh, the Democratic Party by a large number of Southern blacks who had migrated from the South. Uh, that move in part um, occurred because of a, a push for jobs. And it appeared to a number of people that Democrats were providing jobs, uh, more so than Republicans were at the time. I've been speaking to Dr. Stacy Close. He's going to give a lecture on the impact of the Great Migration in the North and the South. It'll be at the Norwalk Historical Society Museum Sunday, February 11th at 2 p.m. More information on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Dr. Close is professor of history and associate vice president for equity and diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you very much. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown, and our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Now, WNPR is in the middle of its winter fundraising campaign. Now's a great time to support the conversations we have on where we live. Here are my colleagues to tell you how.